Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. And it's the Titterpigs, the RPG podcast. Am I getting paid for this one? All right, listeners, welcome back to episode 21 of Titter Pigs. Wow, the big 2-1. We are doing this again. We are we are back in the studio. Scott and I have a few special guests that he's going to interview, or excuse me, he is going to introduce, and we've got a crazy topic for you tonight. Scott, take it away. Absolutely, and uh, congratulations to Titter Pigs for its 21st episode. We can legally drink now. Um, as, as I am doing. <laughs> so... So tonight, yes, as Keith said, we we have a very special uh, grouping of uh, friends here uh, to discuss a uh, a special topic tonight, and uh, that topic is going to be early fanzines and independent publications, for that matter, and try to talk about and discuss how they influenced and impacted the hobby in the earlier days of tabletop role-playing games. Just a quick history about this. This was a discussion that came up during the end of a, um, of a game during Virtual Grog Meet. And as the discussion uh, started to progress, it was like, wait, 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 this sounds like an excellent discussion for the podcast. So let's see if we can uh, get together and talk about this and, uh, you know, just just see where it naturally goes, as all things do on most podcasts. So about 14 months later, <laughs> when we were finally able to coordinate everybody, uh, here we are. And fantastic. I'm very excited to, to have everyone here. So without further ado, I'm going to uh, introduce everyone here. Uh, first off, we have Andy Markham, GM extraordinaire, in my opinion, and many other people's opinion, uh, but also an, an avid and prolific collector of all things tabletop role-playing games and someone who is very knowledgeable of the history of our hobby. Andy, hey there. Oh, thanks for having me. Not knowledgeable, just a fan and an avid collector since, you know, the late 70s and thrilled to be here. Fantastic. Fantastic. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for coming. Next up, uh, we have someone that, you know, most of you know within the hobby. He has a, uh, a wonderful tabletop RPG review site and also does uh, unboxing videos on YouTube. Uh, Pookie, welcome. Uh, good morning and uh, thanks for, for having me on here. You are very welcome. Thank you for returning to the podcast yet again. 
And last but most definitely not least, we have James Holloway. He runs a podcast called Monster Man and uh, likewise is another one who has, I believe, a bit of knowledge about the history of RPGs, but also has uh, recently published uh, a couple zines, if I'm not mistaken, and and also has publications in other books such as uh, Knock, and most recently, which most people are just starting to get, uh, Trophy trophy Gold, Trophy Black, and... Trophy Loom. Trophy Loom. Yeah, there we me. are. Uh, James, welcome. Thank you for coming. Oh, Thank you so much for having me. You are very, very welcome. So the reason why I have you all here is as I, I personally have a, a high degree of respect and opinion for everybody here, and I felt that this particular mix of people uh, coming from a variety of backgrounds and also location uh, would be able to prevent, present a different point of view and examples of the topic of hand, and that is the advent of early fanzines, and some of the things that they did or presented either changed the course of where the hobby was going, influenced it, or even also maybe caused a bit of derision. So I'm going to just go ahead and go around the table and see where this discussion goes. Uh, And hopefully at the end, we are all friends. Uh, (laughs) So James, uh, again, welcome Mm. to the podcast. And shall we begin? Uh, okay, so I, I want to jump a little bit from something that you said about how uh, fanzines arose right. in the early days mm-hmm. of role-playing games, because I, I want to argue that they kind of didn't, okay. in the sense that they existed already. Okay. So the, the you know, early role-playing games, I mean Dungeons & Dragons specifically, but early role-playing games in general emerge from a culture that has fanzines as part of it right Mm -hmm. so whether that's war gamers you know historical or fantasy um a lot of um you know a lot of the founders of role-playing games were big diplomacy players and diplomacy was a a culture that had a lot of fanzines uh that were associated with it right including kind of the publications of diplomacy games as they were being played um and then of course science fiction and fantasy and comic book fandom uh also areas where fanzines um, were prevalent. So I think that, that RPGs emerge from and into a culture where fanzines are the norm, mm-hmm. right? It, it is, it is un- almost understood that, you know, gaming groups, and I think also at this time, maybe gaming groups are kind of, they're not rare, but I do think that they feel a, a desire to have a connection to a wider network that, that did not, you know, the other methods that we use today did not exist at that time. So they kind of correspond with each other, you know, outside of seeing each other at conventions. Mm-hmm. And some of these fanzines are, you can almost think of them as like those Christmas cards that people send out in which they tell you all about what their family's been up to that year, you know? Right. So I, so I, I think that RPGs emerge into this extant culture particularly in the case of wargaming i think where the boundary between what we might think of as a fanzine and what we might think of as a a professional publication is extremely permeable right? right like these are not games that are being published by big publishers these are games that are being you know to some extent they're like there are a couple of big companies and then everybody else is some degree of a hobbyist Right. Uh, and what I think that means is that that ground was already very ripe. Like many fanzines that talk about D&D are fanzines that were originally about other things. And that got kind of taken over by uh, role-playing games when role-playing games became a thing. So I guess what I want to say is that, um, you know, to me, this topic has become more topical since we had that conversation 
uh, at virtual grog meet right. because, of course, we're now at the time that we're recording this in the middle of January. Mm -hmm. We're now in the middle of this conversation and without wanting to go into too much detail about the thing that prompted it. Right. About what is the relationship between the publisher of a game and the hobby or community that surrounds it. Right. So I guess what I'm saying is zines are maybe not even a reaction to uh, RPGs, but they are the, the, the leaf mold on the, on the floor of the forest from which these things come. And I think you have to look at them in that context, that these are games that emerge from fanzine communities. Mm. Um, so yeah, I think that's kind of, uh, the, the, the sort of the, the first thing that emerges. And that's why they're so, you know, we, we look at them and we're like, oh, you know, some fan and his thing, but that's, that's what the community was. Right. Um, and so those discussions, I think were pretty salient in those days, certainly in the early days of the hobby. And, and even, you know, as long as, um, you know, even into the nineties, I can think of at least one, um, you know, fanzine campaign that wound up being extremely influential. Mm -hmm. Uh, on the game it was about. I mean, a, a very excellent point, and and that's that's something that I really didn't think of, but it's so very true. And the first thing that popped in my mind when when you said that was, of course, you know, the the sci-fi zines, fantasy, and other things that were essentially fans of the literary aspect. And if I'm not mistaken, maybe one of you can give me an example, but some of these actually evolved from that into role-playing game zines as it became more popular or or kind of you know melded both together. Andy, do you have anything to add on this? James hit on a lot of uh, the right topics here. For sure, there's a through line between the origins of the hobby, uh, you know, all the way through today, as, as there are you know, from fanzines that preceded the hobby to fanzines today. And I, I think uh, Apazines has to be mentioned. APA, standing for is it Amateur Press Association or Amateur Publishers? Yeah. Amateur Press. Yeah, Amateur, pr amateur Press, right? Most notable, at least in the RPG community, being Legolds, Alarums, and Excursions. And I'm not actually sure if that predated Dungeons and Dragons, but I, I think it started around 75, which means it comes after OD and D. I could be off by a little bit, but I'm sure there are other examples of uh, RPG zines or, or zines that became RPG zines when D and D became what it became, um, and the fans of wargaming or sci-fi or fantasy. Uh, started spending all their attention mm -hmm. and time on uh, the role-playing game hobby. And it really predates social media by 45, 50 years. I mean, some of the conversations that you see in these apazines, they don't just resemble, they immaculate, immaculately and perfectly resemble the types of conversations that go on today in social media down to, um, snubbing and uh, recommendations and plugging uh, products and political infusions and, and all of the, the controversy and, that we see. And, and Andy, just for uh, for people who might not be as immersed mm -hmm. um, yeah. in the zine world, could you briefly explain what an appazine is? Mm -hmm. Yeah, basically it's, it's a fan publication where people send content to a publisher and then at least in the case of alarms, that publisher often restates or, or types or reprints all the correspondence under one roof, so to speak, in an issue. And then that is physically mailed to all the subscribers. And within each issue, 
there is correspondence and rebuttals and, and uh, dialogue going back and forth about previous issues and previous subjects and also additional content. So James is correct. The, the line between sort of fanzine and uh, supplement is blurred right from the get-go because a lot of these appazines had both conversations and content for gaming within them simultaneously. Yeah, I mean, the point is, think about as a, um, as a APA sign, as sort of like as a round-robin um, collation from its contributors. Mm-hmm. Um, and if the, the thing about the fanzines here is, you know, they are points of discussion. They are, they are points of uh, interaction for the community, for the interested part of the gaming community. Because not every part of the gaming community wants to go out and discuss things necessarily, just wants to play. Um, but there are going to people, there were people, obviously gamers who wanted to talk about the hobby with others. And then there are also vehicles, as you say, for those uh, authors and contributors' home campaigns. You know, That's um, so you know, it, this is the game I'm playing. Uh, this is what I've done to make it better. Um, you know, mm-hmm. here are my house rules and so on. Um, but, uh, so yeah, I mean, the, the, this is uh, essentially the equivalent of the internet um, <laughs> decades earlier, as, as Andy said. Um, and there's an interesting sense of you say about the whole uh, um, discussion about what role-playing games are, what their nature is, being replicated in these pages. And that is, uh, that's pointed out, it happens um, again and again, and you can see it's all like an evolution, you know, of, as, as a new infusion of players come into the hobby, especially in something as, lo- as long-running as Alarms and Excursions. Uh, it's highlighted, um, I mean, the one text you should read if you want to read about these fanzines is um, John Peterson's Elusive Shift. Right. It's yes. really a fantastic, it's talking about what it, its main subject is, when did a role-playing game become what we what we call a role-playing game? How do we, when did we identify it as such? But the, the route in which it's discussing discussion and taking uh, through that discussion is through fanzines, through the fanzines discussing, you know, what is this game we are playing? Mm-hmm. I mean, among the the things that Peterson attributes to discussions at fanzines are he talks, for example, about fanzine articles being the first place that you'll see the idea that there's such a thing as immersion. Um, the the first place that you'll see the idea that there are different types of players who have different types of play goals and that different types of rules will satisfy them. The first place you get the idea that uh, different rules will um, sort of condition what people think of as like their expectations for a role-playing game. So these are crucial concepts, like things that we absolutely take for granted mm-hmm. when we think about role-playing games in the modern day. They're absolutely just not present in early, they're not articulated anyway in early game texts and that they're then kind of hashed out by discussion. And, um, you know, I, I think that those are, there's, there's a lot of, one of the things that, cause I, I mean, obviously I, I didn't start out with early versions of D and D. And one of the things that you go back and, and learn when you see it is it surprises you how much is not in it. Mm-hmm. Um, all the things that you kind of assumed about it that aren't really there. And in many cases where that comes from is zine content, mm-hmm. zine discussions. Sure. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot more blank space or no rules than there are rules in OD&D and certainly in Holmes Basic, which came out, what, 77. And, you know, the zines were a fertile ground for this discussion that 
nuanced discussion that continues to this day about the granularity of realism versus theater of the mind or imagination, you know, just pure fantasy. I mean, I'm reading in a November 1977 issue of Alarms and Excursions about these exact topics, which I saw discussed on Facebook this morning in 2023. Right. So the importance of zines uh, has been established um, and some definitely some examples of what they provided and what they've uh, the discussion that, as you said, still occurs today. I, you, you can open up a zine from 1977 and literally copy and paste it onto Twitter. It's interesting that, you see that conversation isn't necessarily happening in the zines today, though. No, no. And that, that's definitely something that I would like to touch upon. That's a good point. Yeah, it's, it's definitely the, the zines today are definitely a different beast altogether uh, as, as to where they once were. And I think that's kind of why I wanted to uh, predicate the discussion as fanzines, because that, that, that is a very important difference between what most people, at least in modern gaming, consider to be zines. And that doesn't mean that modern zines are, you know, are wrong. It's just they are different than what fanzines sure. were previously. Well, that's the thing. There's no, there's no codified definition of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, it it's, it's, it's varied and quite personal. But I think the key I think that, that runs throughout all of them is either amateur or fan. Like right. we're not abbreviate, abbreviating magazine no. to zine. It's fanzine to zine. Right. Whether you're shy about the fandom part or not, or whether it's <laughs> right. just a cutesy abbreviation, that's up to the reader. But right. we're certainly talking about third-party publications or amateur press for sure. That's, that is baked in, I believe, to the definition. Yeah, I, absolutely. Um, but I mean, the thing is to bear in mind that sort of like between uh, the, 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 the fanzine and the magazine, you do have what you could kind of call prosines, um, which yeah. are titles which uh, um, wanted to be better and, and generally had better uh, production values, mm-hmm. uh, generally had support from the company, from the publishers to an extent. There were never very few, very, very many of them. Uh, perhaps the be- uh, I'm sure Andy could come up with a, a, a few, but my go to example is uh, Tortured Souls. Torture Souls, yeah, of course. That was the one I was going to bring up, too. In the early 80s, the 12 issues provided content for Advanced Dungeons and & Dragons and, and RuneQuest. Um, and that's still basically just content in terms of a whole world setting and scenarios for it. Mm-hmm. And, and very well presented. Mm. It was multicolor, glossy, and uh, rather fancy compared to most fanzines, but still amateur and yet uh as spooky points out i guess it could be categorized as a prosine for sure i mean another to me the the one that leaps to mind is uh a tales of the reaching moon is like that right that that or yeah. or yeah. Uh, there's quite a lot of glorantazines that are now just integrated into like stuff that first appeared in those zines mm-hmm. is you know is is lead pipe cinch cannon like just is part of the game and is you know um no one would debate that so yeah, and I think there's there's a very good reason for that because time and again, if you have a look at the the, the names of contributors and authors to fanzines, um, you will see them, uh, you know, writing in you know in their in their teens, in their twenties, and you go forward five years, uh, maybe ten, you see these these people writing actual content for role playing games. Actually, designing yeah. role-playing games. Um, you know, the most famous there perhaps is Robin D. Laws, where, where basically when he pops up in uh, sort of like late eighties, early nineties, 
um, alarms and excursions. And suddenly in the 90s, you know, he's designed a lot of titles since. Um, and then you have the example of uh, the uh, Over the Edge um, role-playing game. That was born out of a campaign that was presented, you know, in the pages of Alarms and Excursions. Mm -hmm. You know, that's... Incredible. Um, so uh, there are, I say, numerous examples of designers and writers who have come out of the hobby scene um, and made a name for themselves in the industry. That's the other big question. One of the earlier examples of that would be David A. Hargrave, mm. the Arduin Grimoire fame, where I think he was, his Arduin setting and rule set, and I use uh, air quotes for that, is a direct rebuttal to OD&D. And it was first an augmentation of OD&D, and you can see him physically typing, this is, these are my house rules or add-ons. And then later you can see it morph into, this is something completely separate from OD&D. And of course, it isn't. It relies on OD&D as an engine, but the the verbiage changes subtly over time. And we see contributors even still alive to this day who are contributing all the way back in the mid to late 70s. Stephen Marsh amongst them. Um, yeah, the names go on and on. Um, still, of, still contributing to games today. One of the things that's really interesting to me is so the, 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 the direction of travel from zine to pro is not always one way right yeah. so um i uh some years ago the cambridge university role-playing and tabletop gaming society kurtz for short was getting rid of its old library oh. um and they sold off most of the uh i had to save those poor children they they <laughs> were selling stuff for so far below its value and i, I had to write to them with tears in my eyes but anyway um they gave me all their old white dwarfs because they didn't need him, because nobody plays those games. Right. Um, <laughs> you know? Um, and, well, they don't, though. So, and it, with that came a bunch of fanzines. And um, some of these I, I was able to find a little information about, and some I wasn't. But looking at, for example, uh, this, uh, which obviously the listeners can't see, but this 1981 issue of The Storm Lord has a cover by Alan Hunter. Wow. Uh, right? Oh, and that's on a... Fame. Yeah. yeah. But but Alan Hunter came out of the sci-fi fanzine, uh, like world. That's what he was sort of known for. And then, but so you know, but this is 1981. That's the year the Fiend Folio comes out. Um, so right when he's one of the featured artists in the big TSR release of the year, he's also. And this is like all the covers are the same theme. They're all a picture of a, uh, you know, an armored horseman rearing up. So, like, it's not like they just found some Alan Hunter Halo and stuck it on there. I think he did it for them. Wow. And this is a zine that nobody's heard of, I don't think. Mm. You know, this is not like a big circulation thing. It's all just complaining no, probably about how long the lines are at Games Day. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I mean, to be, I mean, to, to be fair, outside Alarms and Excursions, these fanzines never had a huge um, readership anyway. I mean, you're talking at mm. the most a few hundred for some of the most popular ones. Um, and uh, even in that, they were terribly cliquey. So there was a lot of interaction. Yeah. I mean, certainly here in the UK, um, there was a lot of interaction between the fanzines' editors. You know, they would be swapping copies. They would be going back and forth and commenting upon each other's fanzines. There would be feuds and arguments and, and so on. Um, so they were, in essence, it's sort of like their own, uh, their own community within each issue, you know, with each with each title, um, but then their own community as a whole. 
um, you know, because they were produced on uh, produced cheaply, they were expensive expensive to 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 produce or buy. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. But the I mean the, the main problem I think with those early fanzines, like in my experience, was actually finding out about them, because again you you had no right. you had no way unless you sort of like suddenly you found one at a convention there was a table selling them or uh thankfully in the case of um, certainly white dwarf and imagine magazines they had um you know classifieds in the back and the case of imagine had a whole department that was devoted to fanzines you know uh pete Townley would write up what's going on in the latest um uh, um news in the fanzine um world in the uk you know for that month um so yeah, you know incredible yeah um i Oh, sorry. Oh, go on. No, no, I can't believe I can't believe that uh, I haven't said this yet. But of course, the obvious prosine uh, is the unspeakable oath, right? Like yeah. that's yeah. that's that that, uh, that that Delta Green came from, mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. right? That's from an issue of the unspeakable oath. I have that issue, and I found out about that because it was in, it was mentioned in the fifth edition Call of Cthulhu rulebook. I'd never heard of it. I had to ask my game shop to get it specially for me, <laughs> and they kept it underneath the counter because it had boobs on the cover like yeah you know what i mean like it, it was they were hard to find you had to write a letter yeah. to these guys you know who was just like three 20 something roommates or whatever well and, to that point that's how um, you got it I, I was glancing through a lot of these alarms issues today in preparation for this podcast and i noticed that the page one or i should say page two after lee gold's introduction yeah. is a list of zines with addresses, which I think is wonderful. So the takeaway here is very community oriented, but Pookie's right. You couldn't get these unless you were either in direct personal correspondence with the publisher, mm-hmm. who's just somebody in their home or going to conventions regularly. And even then it was a, you know, needle and haystack crapshoot. Right. But those people who yeah. are going to conventions regularly are already the hardcore. They're the same guys. Exactly. I mean, I want to come back, come back to uh, James's, uh, point about um, unspeakable oath being um, uh, a prosine, and he's quite correct. But the other thing to bear in mind is, with unspeakable oath, it is a very typical nineties fan- fanzine that is focused upon the one game. Um, yes. In general, fanzines of the earlier periods, and certainly during the eighties, would, would be focused upon generally D and D and um, a broader range. Request. Yeah, request, but a broader range of games. By the '90s, they kind of um, the hard they kind of, sort of like coalesced down to like a hardcore of subjects. So you had fanzines for you know, Call of Cthulhu in the case of Unspeakable Oath, um, Slay Industries had the big picture, and so on. And you had uh, and you had all these RuneQuest fanzines as well, and they were all dedicated to those one games rather than just you know the array we normally expect. Yeah. So the, in the '90s, you see sort of a distillation or a, uh, a the breakdown by topic of these zines more more commonly than the '70s and the '80s. Right. Now, do you think that that is something that result like that that results from a similar siloing in the community? Right. Um, I mean, it must. Yeah. I mean, yeah. People were were focusing on their interests. Yeah. I, I agreed. I think the other thing to bear in mind with the '90s is um, you have the impact of Magic the Gathering upon the industry and the, the, essentially, the, the, um, essentially the, the, the role-playing game, the role-playing hobby kind of shrunk and the industry shrunk as it concentrated upon the collectible card games. You know, you, you track the number of role-playing games coming out 
uh, across the 90s and it dips noticeably in the middle 90s. So the fans no longer had um, a game which they could get hold of easily that was being actively supported necessarily by the publisher. And in those cases, certainly in the case of the big the, the big picture for Slay Industries, that became the de facto sort of like um, output for Slay Industries for a certain period of time in the late nineties, or uh, Warpstone for Warhammer Fantasy. That's well, well to a certain extent, Warpstone was kind of uh, yeah. I mean, during that period after Hogshead um, shut its doors in terms of supporting War- Warhammer, that's certainly the case. But mm-hmm. also at the same time. Um, Warpstone had the kind of the explicit support of of Hogshead Public, yeah, 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 yeah. you know, because I mean, I was working for Hogshead at the time myself. Um, yeah, yeah, it was kind of the farm team, wasn't yeah. it? Like that was the that was the and and you can see similar phenomena, like probably the closest thing to it, because as you say, modern zines are very different. Um, I feel like the the closest attempt to do something like that in the modern day was maybe like the Undercroft. Um, and that definitely had that, like, I know they were, uh, reprinting submissions that had been rejected elsewhere because I got a let, you know, I got a note from an editor going, well, we're not going to take this, but you might send it to Daniel. (laughs) Yeah. This is, uh, Daniel Sells, Melsonian Arts Council zine. Uh, and I, I think it was pretty narrowly focused towards lamentations Mm -hmm. during publication, but widely for OSR, right? Yeah. Initially, but I mean, it's widened since. Um, but I mean, yeah, and I mean, the other thing um, is that with something like the 90s fanzines, again, we, we didn't, there were a couple, a few for Skyrims of Jeroen for even obscure games like that. You know, mm-hmm. Borkley's Folly is one I was involved in. Um, but the, the, the thing is about that, with something like Warpstone, you know, it's, it's a place not only to show off your, um, you know, your fandom, great content for it, but it's also a vehicle through which you can delve into the game background and history as well warpstone did that fantastically well um you know mm. interviewed, interviewed so many of the game's um writers and artists and so on over over the, its 30 issues um such as if you've got a full run you've got you know here's the history of the early early history of warhammer um in its pages as well as content you can play mm-hmm. so let me oh, let wonderful. me let me throw this out this is this is purely Keith coming from a probably a very ignorant point. <laughs> so having grown up in the game stores in the the eighties, right? I didn't see a lot of I didn't see a lot of zines, right? I don't have a lot of early background in in or background in the early zines, but I do have a lot of background in the early Dragon magazines and the early Dungeon magazines, right? I remember them in the school library. We could go check them out like the, as periodicals and sit there on my lunch break and look at them they had the hard plastic covers and we could look at them and you know we could see them at the local game stores and uh, and buy them there do you guys think like as early zines the coming out of the 70s and into the 80s and then later on into the 90s do you think they morphed from being like what alarms and excursions was and even still is today to some extent um, and some of the early zines where they were broad spectrum, like the the Appa style, to more of a, I don't want to say a pro zine, but, you know, more of a centralized 
I think the word you're looking for, the term you're looking for is house or house organ is what they were. Well, I mean, dragon and dungeon are obviously house organs, right? But, you know, if you look at like Warpstone, right, that is a that is a funneled stovepiped type of zine, right? It's singular in its focus, but it's not it's not a house organ, right? But it's singular in its focus. But do you think like that is is an evolution of the success of Dragon and Dungeon coming up, you know, alongside it or or before it, where those those uh, zine companies or publishers are trying to capitalize? I think. I mean, one thing that I think is interesting is if you look at kind of mid period, so from the late '80s onward gaming magazines there's never another really big really successful multi-game mainstream magazine after white dwarf goes all warhammer mm-hmm. right like right because dragon talked about other games i read a review of werewolf the apocalypse and dragon magazine i didn't feel like they quite understood it but like <laughs> there you know and there was whatever there was shadis and gdw had a magazine challenge Island. is that what yeah. it was yeah or um there was by avalon hill there was white wolf magazine itself you know like they've existed arcane you know like it's not that there were none but none that ever had that same you know level of mainstream success gravitas of white dwarf or the dragon yeah i mean here in the uk the impact of white dwarf those early years of, of white white dwarf and imagine cannot be underestimated upon the industry because they were the essentially uh, if you were if you're interested in the wider hobby, they were the focus. You read them religiously every month. You know they provided mm-hmm. space for fanzines to appear and be discussed, and have contact details in the back. Um, I think, in some ways, the, the reaction of the, the, the '90s, which you, you know you're referring to, uh, Keith, is, is twofold. It's it's a reaction to the, they're going away. Mm-hmm. Um, it's um, it's a reaction to uh, well okay um, my game isn't available anymore um, I think it's great I think there's, people are still interested in it I think we can you know get together and create stuff ourselves for it um, and that's combined also with the technological change of the late eighties yeah. and definitely into the early nineties with personal computing and um, being you know semi and actual professional layout software packages, you know, desktop publishing packages becoming available. I mean, I, I mean, I, we did our, I mean, I was involved in my first fanzine in what would have been about 86, 87, something like that. There was only ever one issue, but we had a very, what would have been a decent uh, DTP package for the Atari computer and could do a <laughs> decent layout and make it look good. Um, right. Hmm. Yeah, you know, uh, that was cool. Just the fact that you did it on an Atari computer is just impressive. Uh, Jesus. It was a good <laughs> Atari computer at the time. Um, it, um, you know, it was what, I mean, the, the and the thing is, with that, we went to, I think it probably would have been a games fair uh, mm-hmm. convention at Reading in the 80s. And, you know, we rocked up, had it for sale. Um, and we talk, could talk to other fanzine producers because they would all get together and they all knew each other. And that was kind of our way of introducing ourselves to sort of like, you know, those people whose name we recognized in the community. It was our- How cool is that? I know. Wonderful. Yeah. You know, 
Do you still have it, Pookie? Uh, I do have a copy somewhere. Yes. Um, it's right next to Up the Garden Path. It's right next. To, <laughs> uh, it's called it's it's called uh, Sartine's Knowledge, and it was interesting that sort of like somebody. Um, I, I've got a friend here in Birmingham, Dave, whom you, some of you have basically been online very rarely, mm. and he said, "Oh, hold on a minute." That's where I re- when he first sort of first met, met me in Africa, couple that's where I recognised the name from. Incredible. Scan and share. Yeah. I can't because it's it's um you know it, uh, the, the pub the my, the, my, the friend of mine my publisher he does not want like to go online. There's nothing wrong. There's nothing. There's nothing uh, rude or adult or anything like that. It just doesn't want to want it to go online. Sure. But where where do you keep a pookie because when i come over there in uh 2024 i'll uh you know just need to excuse myself to the restroom momentarily and uh look for it uh, sorry. Uh, i mean the point is if you're going to the restroom to look for anything in my in my games collection um essentially your family would have gone back having lost it <laughs> oh excellent so so I've got a couple questions for each one of you here for the most part the topic at hand has been touched on uh, several different ways but do you do each one of you would you happen to have an example of one that may that maybe drastically change the course of the hobby or influence it or or even I mean there's there's the the obvious thing of like uh, Arduin of how it changed the course of D&D that it impacted and likewise I you know it's safe to assume that it's accepted that they borrowed from it in later editions in one way or another but are there are there other zines out there and or articles that you that you would like to reference or point out for those who are listening, because I know that there's going to be people who are going to listen to this and they're going to want to go and seek these things out. Um, Andy, I defer. I defer to the others. I mean, yeah. outside of some little controversial back and forths that were published within both Ardu and Grimoire and the Gygax's AD and D Dungeon Master's Guide that were sniping at each other, right? I'm actually not convinced that Arduin influenced D and D in a in a in a meaningful way. I think it showed a sign or a side of fandom and certainly a direction that certain game masters were taking their campaigns and their quote unquote rules. But I don't think it pushed D and D or the brand in any one direction or another. Arduin itself, and 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 I don't have any other examples, so I defer to the others. That would be a question for John Peterson. Let's be honest. Right, exactly, but. <laughs> But we, what we have here is is Pookie and James. So uh, Pookie, yeah. <laughs> so I do have one, and I don't. Um, and this is this is one that I've, I've read about, and I've read the uh, the uh, the article that stemmed from it. Um, and that's Glenn Blauco's aspects of adventure gaming, which you can find in Different Worlds issue ten. You can track it down that cop that with without any difficulty. And what that article does is distilled down sort of like that discussion um, of what the nature of role-playing was and the types of players into one um, simple formula, um, you know, it, it's, it, you know, so he had this article called Aspects of Adventure Gaming, um, which, which suggested a model with four basic categories into which role-players could be put, role-playing, storytelling, power gaming, and war gaming. And it's it, there we have we go back to you know the, the, the examples we've already mentioned about you know categorizing the types of players you know um, right. already by that point but this here the article literally distills it down and make, presents it in a fashion that is professional so you've got what like it's, you know one of the earliest sort of like um, articles published 
about the nature of what you know of, of what types of players there were mm-hmm. um and i think it's the sort of it's, it's an example of the discourse um that would f- constantly um you know push designers forward to, des- to 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 you know think about well what is it here that i'm actually creating who am i creating this mm-hmm. game for um you know and, and, and ultimately that's probably best best seen in, in in gamers in designers when you like jonathan tweet robin d laws who are using getting at that kind of fun, those fundamental questions when it comes to designing their games uh the issue poogie's referring to is october november 1980 mm-hmm. and i'm looking here at it right just a pdf of it and uh i'm just trying to find the actual breakdowns of those do you have those categories pookie uh role-playing storytelling power gaming and wargaming yeah that spells it out pretty succinctly and that that was 1981 1980 1980. wow yeah give any sort of general discord that can occur on a tabletop rpg social media today uh, those categories are brought up almost daily. Oh yeah, uh, discussions oh, yeah. over storytelling, discussions over any any one of those aspects is still an ongoing conversation that you know gets recycled time and time again. And that's that, that's something to note that these discussions were going on forty some odd years ago. So it's 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 enlightening uh, to me because yeah. I'm going to say it's important to bear in mind those discussions were going on. You know, well, what's now nearly 50, 45, 50 years ago? Okay. But they really have kind of like a life cycle of about five to eight years, <laughs> because every time they would have a new infusion of, of, of you know, players, you know, who would um, graduate from sort of like being teenagers to really begin to think about what they were playing and asking, well, yep. is it what we're doing? And they'd come in and they'd have that exact same discussion whilst, you know, the, the, the players who'd precede them will be going, oh, God, not this again. And I can remember yeah, the, going through uh, that, you know. It's the RPG community's version of uh, what they call the eternal September, right? Um, <laughs> right. It's it's when the youngsters reach that that point where they can start critically thinking for themselves. Right. Yeah. But I, I do think that that's actually like less true than it used to be, because, precisely for the reason that that article and designers who were influenced by it exist. Because if you're, you know, if you're a kid who's only played D&D and then you start to think about like, well, maybe I should play him this way, that's fine. But like, if you have also played Monster Hearts, you've got to look at them and go, these two games are very different and they're doing different right. things. Right. Yeah, I, um, in a way that you might not, like, you can look at D&D and RuneQuest and think, I mean, although those games are very different, and think these are two ways of doing the same thing, and I like one of them better than the other. Mm-hmm. But you can't look at Monster Hearts and go, this is just a better version of D&D. Right. Like, they're just, they're so different from each other in terms of what the game is trying to achieve. Sure. Another big difference that the modern era heralds in uh, Tapuki's, you know, regenerating every eight years the same concepts, is that streaming has changed the game. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, coming up in the late 70s and early 80s, there was this big pervasive fear that I would discuss with my young gaming friends. Like, are we doing it right or are we doing it wrong? We almost were afraid to go outside of our tiny little circle and meet people who would tell us that you're doing it wrong. Nowadays, you can tune into not tens, but hundreds of thousands of hours of streamed 
tabletop RPG content to pick your own version of how to do it right, or just watch. And more people watch people playing D&D than actually playing D&D or, or tabletop role-playing game. Right. So this dynamic has got to uh, shift the dialogue, right? Zines are, are dinosaurs in that respect. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I mean, the, back in the day for that, if you wanted to learn... Um, yes, you learn about what how to be a better role player. Perhaps there might be the occasional article in a magazine, okay? Mm -hmm. But on the main, it would be a case of you would go out and go to a convention and play in someone else's game and go, go you know, and find and, and find out, well, how are they running it? How are they doing it? Um, and that was not something that everybody wanted to do. You know, you know people would stick to playing their, their, their home clubs or their home groups um, you know, you had, it did take a bit of a, you know, you had to be a bit more adventurous in terms of, of um, your gaming. I still have gaming friends who play only in their home group and, and wouldn't think of going to a convention and playing. The idea of playing in public, you know, it, it, it shocks the very idea. Um, <laughs> but yeah, it was a case of, you know, going out and going into that community was the way to do it back then. Now, of course, um, you know, you can find multiple references upon, you know, if you've got to, uh, role-playing uh, streams to watch, you've got articles about you know how to be a role better role player. You can go on to drive them and go, how do I be a better, buy a book on how to be a better player, how to be a better GM, and so on. Mm -hmm. Blogs, of course. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. Well, <clears throat> no, I think it. I think it changes the calculus on it completely. Mm. You know that. So maybe. So maybe you're right. Maybe that that eight year cycle is now a two year cycle. <laughs> what you don't. The, 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 I don't think. So the, the the designs, the fanzines of the uh, you know the tens and the the the, the, um, the, the you know the teenies, tweenies and the and, and the um, and the noughties are radically different to what they were um, back in the late seventies and eighties, mm -hmm. for the most part. So James, um, do you happen to have an example? of my question you would like to touch upon um that changed the gaming so I, I think the one that that stands out for me and this is something you know like this is not an insight that i had this is another thing from john peterson but he right. talks about a series of discussions in mm -hmm. uh the wild hunt which is another seminal scene from that era that we haven't discussed yet um right. uh and that um w w which is where people started to talk about the idea of immersion you know, that that uh, and not just the idea of immersion, but specifically system design toward immersion. Right. So that not that it was just an experience that players would get as they, you know, sat and enjoyed Dave Wesley's wonderful storytelling or whatever. But that day, but that you could craft a game in such a way as to promote this experience. And I think that there are a lot of games that are, you know, today that that um, I mean, we're all like. The discussions of gaming theory always bogged down on immersion. Everybody yells. Nobody knows what immersion is, et cetera, et cetera. <laughs> but, um, you know, but that's been the case since the, you know, mid to late 70s. Right. Yeah. And, and the Forge uh, and the, the, the games that it spawned is sort of, uh, you know, the, the cornerstone of that discussion that launched a million what we mm -hmm. now call story games. Right. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, yeah. And they they refused to you know, define immersion in a meaningful way um, because no one could agree what it was supposed to be, but <laughs> they, right. everybody agreed that it was important. Yes. Right. Oh, geez. So Andy touched on something that just kind of got me thinking a bit. Everyone's discussed the, the general evolution of the fanzine and we kind of got up to about, you know, the nineties and the two thousands and, 
the ebb and flow of the particular zines and their styles and what they represent from being an all-inclusive, uh, kind of touching on the hobby as a whole, to these kind of branching uh, focus zines that were exclusively for a particular type of game or a particular style of gaming. And then it seems like at a certain point, you know, fanzines maybe just kind of drifted away. There may be a few here or there, and then things tend to change technologically. And then now, do you feel that with some of the, with the aspects of streaming, with podcasting, with, you know, these, these representatives of the tabletop RPG community who have uh, YouTube channels, that is this the evolution of fanzines? I mean, they, they, I mean, not, I'm not talking about the people who do streaming, but, you know, people who do reviews and discuss aspects of role playing games and discuss a variety of topics. You know, first one that kind of pops in my head is like Seth Skorkowski, who kind of does all of the above. That, you know, these are now these, these kind of digital visual rep- representations of what fanzines once used to be back in the day or do you consider it to be that this is its own thing that this is separate it's fan based it's grassroots it's just someone who's inspired to do something but that's it's separate that zines are still more of a physical printed publication aspect I mean, obviously they're related mm-hmm. in terms of content but i think uh you know that i think they remain fundamentally separate one one is in print and one is 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 not well, I think that there's an important similarity, though, which is that, you know, both zines and things like, you know, YouTube or RPG TikTok or whatever, mm-hmm. all are about the, the way in which producing those things is accessible to members of the community, right? So it is, a, it is easier to start a YouTube channel and film yourself with your phone than it is to make a print scene these days, right? Like... Oh, by a huge margin, for yeah, sure. Yeah, going like going and using the copy machine in your mom's office or whatever <laughs> you know we were all doing back in the day. But like, but I so I do think that in that sense we can argue that they're a successor because they're essentially a path of least resistance, right? If you wanted to get your views to other members of the community mm-hmm. in the seventies or in the eighties, this was the way in which you could do it. Was that you know if you didn't talk to them face to face at a convention, you had to make yourself a little zine, and because you were that kind of person, you would call it you know the Lightning Master and put like a drawing you did on the cover, and <laughs> the, the and and so that like the the professional like youtube gamer who's who's spent a lot of money on lights maybe is not a successor of those zines that that person might be a you know like a professional right but i do think that those media are our modern equivalent of the accessibility of zines to people who want to communicate their ideas good point yeah yeah i mean i think that points to sort of continuing sort of like democratization of, of sort of like um of opinion you know within the hobby um and i mean the other obviously big difference between the presentation upon uh, the YouTube and then the fanzine is it's sort of like, it's typically the YouTube is just one person. Ultimately, it's one person. They may have collaborators, but but, but I mean, that's working together um, in the sense of sort of like to prevent a, present a stream playing um, rather than getting around and having a, necessarily having a discussion about a certain subject or presenting some content to play. So fanzines still have that role because, um, you know, it, it's, having that content in print is the easiest way to impart that kind of information. Um, but again, the, the fanzines of, the, of, of today have kind of changed because they are tend to be, uh, they really come out of the, a lot of them come out of the old school Renaissance. 
So there's a lot of backward thinking towards them, leaning back towards um, the time when creators wanted to, you know, um, wanted to put their own content content out and share it with people in terms of worlds and settings and rules. And that's what they're doing still. Um, and there is very much, in, for the most part, in the fanzine certainly that I'm seeing, that there's no real discussion of uh, how you play um, yeah, and the nature of, 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 of role-playing per se. It's primarily kind of game support. Yeah, house rules, setting content, monsters, spells, magic items, etc. Right. It's I, I would I would definitely say that fanzines of today are two thirds of what fanzines of yesterday used to you know were. They're 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 missing key elements of of what fanzines were of the seventies and the eighties and even even bordering up into the early nineties. Right. They're missing the. The, the other support pieces, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. But but I mean of, of the of the of the pillars. Yeah, but that's not to their necessarily to their detriment because that bit that missing bit is um, has been subsumed into the hobby at, la- at large anyway. Because you can go right. and find that elsewhere. There is no reason to have that content in those fanzines at all. Right. Those hobby conversations that used to take place in zines take place on social media. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, or, or, or they take place, you know, like in other environments is the, 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 it is a case of like, you know, Twitter out compete. I mean, for all its many faults, you know, I'm, this is not a defense of it. Right. But, you know, Twitter out competes the zine letter column as a way to have yeah. these yeah, conversations, yeah. but it doesn't out compete zines as a way to like publish your dungeon. Yeah. Also, you can't you can't uh, not mention the nostalgia quotient in yeah. the OSR zines. In a, in a, in a sense, they're a callback, almost a direct callback to the zines of yore. And then there's a twist on an aesthetic twist, which is a competition for who's got the coolest and slickest layout and presentation. So you've got, you know, the fancier gilt edges and you know uh, special bindings and who's got the coolest artist etc etc so those are the two basic type of print zines that we're seeing in the modern osr which is my goodness almost 20 years old now Mm -hmm. yeah (laughs) Yeah. pretty much i mean yeah i I remember when it started (laughs) the other thing with the old school renaissance and certainly the industry as, as industry is that now um because of that nostalgia element you have publishers putting out their own content in their own fanzines. You know, these are, yeah. these are essentially, they are the equivalent of house magazines for these publishers. So Carcass Crawler mm. from Necrotic mm-hmm. Gnome right. is the perfect example of this. Technically, it's a fanzine, but it's right. not. Right. It's just using the right. as yeah. um, as a vehicle. And the other important thing we haven't discussed yet is mm-hmm. another, another, not necessarily so subtle shift in um, uh, in fanzines um, of late, in the last two to three years, is fanzines as a vehicle, not for the old school renaissance, but fanzines as a content for um, whole objects, whole role-playing games, whole yeah. world-building yeah. um, titles. I've just looked at uh, the, Electrum Ar- the Electrum Archive. It's fantastic. Mm-hmm. It's such a superb fanzine. I picked up and I went, this is so good writing. The artwork is fantastic. I want more of this world. I can't wait for the next issue. But you have whole different individual small role-playing games that previously perhaps would have come out via the um, storytelling movement um, are now essentially yes. coming out of using using essentially um, ZineQuest 
um, yeah. on Kickstarter. And those, so a lot of these, a lot of these modern day zines owe as much to the Shab Alhiri Roach as they do mm. to any like zine of the seventies. Yeah, for sure. It's again, it's a question of the accessibility. Like it's, yeah. um, you know, I uh, the software is available to people. You know, people just at their homes with like their computers. We've seen people who lay this stuff out on their phones yeah. and yeah. it looks fantastic. And that it just, we're, we're at a situation again with a line between, I mean, it, like, listen, I like, I, I, I love those Mary Mushman, but in what sense is knock a magazine? <laughs> um, right. Yeah. You know, knock is not a magazine. I am sorry. That is a book. I'm going to draw a line it, in the sand. Uh, it's not a magazine. <laughs> it's a sort of, what's well, like an annual, you know yeah. what I mean? It, it just, yeah. Which it, it's a collected work. Right. Of some sort it's of anthology. It excuse me, it, it's it's a zine mimic. Excuse me. <laughs> yes. I, mean, I would just, I would buy into that. We've returned to uh, a situation, um, uh, at like one that existed in the seventies, where the line between professional and zine publication is blurry. Although at that time it was because professional publications looked as crummy as mimeographed zines, and now it's because right. yeah. uh, you know, zines put out by some person in their bedroom. Uh, can yeah, look as slick right. as something put out by a big company, right? Yeah, I mean, I mean, the thing is, so I mean, so at this point, it is now difficult to kind of, um, you know, look look at that, so see that difference between um, the fanzine as what as was that. You know, so, for example, um, we've already mentioned um, uh, the Undercroft, you know, or uh, any of the Dungeon Crawl Classics fanzines that kind yes. of you know that that supported mm-hmm. it with the content for the game, and then. These individual games, self-contained in one in in, in the fanzine format, are those fa- are those fanzines? I would argue they're not. They're just using the format because mm-hmm. right. they're not. And, that's, and I was they're gonna I was gonna comment on that. Uh, yeah, are we inexor- inexorably creeping towards OGL one point one conversation now? Is this no? Let's not. Let's <laughs> not. It's it's implied, and I think people can assume yeah. that we're thinking it. But yeah, <laughs> right. Yeah. Well, I mean, the the because the relevance of that conversation, which in which we are not engaging, not is that they represent true. a, you know, again, it's about that democratization of, Correct. uh, of of content. Like I, um. Yeah, like I bought a, a a a little you know A5 softback, so a zine mm-hmm. uh, at Dragon Meat, which is an RPG in which you play obsessed orchid hunters in the Victorian era. Like that is just not something that you could get anywhere, like across the desk of a publisher, right? Yeah. Like it could, right. but it's gorgeous, you know. Right. It's a beaut and and like physically, it's a beautiful object. So it's you know we're in this situation where and like it was just these two kids. You know, like I don't this they were not representing a company. They were just two kids at a table. And uh, I think like, yeah, so like we can say that like the line is blurred, but I think blurred in a in a fruitful way, you know, blurred, blurred in a way that has good. I should call them pamphlet, pamphlet games, something (laughs) because a zine is a Fans. Things are called well, what they're called. It, 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 well, it comes Can't from it, it comes from music culture too. Yeah. I mean, right. Oh yeah, yeah, for and, sure. And for I mean, sure. Yeah. I, I, There's a through line. There. I mean, I would be happy with 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 zine games or zine RPGs rather than fanzine RPGs because it mm-hmm. leaves off that fan bit because there's no fan element involved. Well, you you bring up a valid point because we are yeah. at the precipice of a, another zine quest in a couple weeks, 
And four is it? Uh, five, actually. Five. five. And wow. you know, for those of you who participated in the first one, there, there, with this also, there's an evolution of what the what was presented in Zine Quest One as zines, and to what are being pre- what will be presented now and have been presented, you know, in previous years. As are they? Uh, you know, some of these are these are beautiful publications. They they produce you know wonderful content. But it's kind of like is it has it has it bypassed what most considered to be what Zinquest is is this kind of grassroots uh, effort to promote these two kids at a table uh, whose scene is only seen by James at this this con, but allow them to <laughs> to present what they've done to the world, uh, which has now become more of a. I mean, there's there are creators that I know who gauge their um, annual income based on right. ZineQuest. Uh, and Incredible. a lot of people would kind of argue that that's not, you know, the way, you know, to quote a Mandalorian uh, of or the, <laughs> or the purpose of, of ZineQuest. But it is what it is. So... I mean, if I think one of the things that we have to accept is that if we were so because because the other thing about the zines is like sometimes people are just like, oh, yeah, I've got the like this kind of process on the cover and we've got this kind of typesetting. And I'm just like, listen, buddy, uh, you know, like deluxe collectibles for the book lover down the hall. This is affordable paperbacks for the working gamer. Like it's a different department. But, well, you that, know, that but... was that was that was Luke Crane and his team's idea when they started Zine mm-hmm. Quest One was to exactly as James just spelled out, mm-hmm. just very simple, two color or just black and white, and right. very quickly that. But if we that. have to be, if we are being realistic about what constitutes affordable paperbacks for the working gamer, then it's digital products, right? That's like the, the 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 equivalent of the Zine in 2023 is a digital product is a PDF. Um, and people don't like that because people are book collectors and whatever, but like one could argue, I think that, you know, that ain't punkety rock or whatever, you know? Right. Um, there are Merry right. Mushroom fellows have it really uh, perfectly done too, because of those beautiful PDFs that they offer as well. Mm-hmm. There is that. So, and I'm not, I mean like me, I'm not a, f- I, I like PDFs with my physical books, but if, there, if it's, a, if it's available physically, I prefer physical. Oh, same. I work at a computer all day. I mean, I I read physical books to give my eyes a break. Mm-hmm. Um, that's just that's the reality of growing old and having to wear reading glasses, right? Um, and Definitely, working on computers all day. I guess I just mean that if we're talking about accessibility, then I don't know how else we respond in yeah. the face of rising paper costs, international right. shipping. No, you're et cetera, absolutely et right. You are. Absolutely right on that. Yeah, I, was, I was looking at some of the costs for mailing um, Lee Gold's alarms yeah. in 1977, yeah. and uh, I think it was 25 cents for first class to get this from <laughs> uh, New York to California or wherever it went. And mm-hmm. it was international too. Some of the international rates were obscenely low compared to today. Oh. Uh, we're going to be wrapping up soon, but would definitely like to you know have any closing thoughts from you three before we uh, wrap up the podcast here. I'd just like to say that this has been so much fun. I could talk about this for hours with you guys. It's a pleasure being with you. And my personal addiction started when, I guess it was my introduction to the hobby, was in 78 through OD&D and Arduin Grimoire, which I just thought was one of the OD&D supplements. So, again, the seamless merger of zines with the game, the official game, is so uh, sort of core to my enjoyment of this hobby, which is why it's been a lifelong passion of mine. So, Thanks for letting me ramble on it. Absolutely. 
Pookie, James, any, any anything you'd like to add? Okay, uh, I guess for me, I think, you know, more than the, like, as fascinating as zines are in terms of their importance in the history of role-playing games, I think that more interesting to me and more important, I think more relevant today is what they represent, which is to say a vision of, uh, of gaming, you know, of RPGs, of gaming in general, that is rooted in uh, the community, right? That is, um, in, in, that is not a one directional relation of publisher to consumer, but uh, where that thing that the publisher makes is just more leaf mold that the weird mushrooms are growing out of. Um, and the accessibility of zines, both in terms of their accessibility to a reader and their accessibility for a creator mm -hmm. are what make them so important in fostering that community led sense. And the, you know, the, their, their resurgence in the modern day, albeit in a different form, I think is symptomatic of, uh, that attitude still existing or indeed maybe, you know, existing again, maybe existing more within a community that is, you know, starting to have like a multipolar understanding right. of where games come from. People are starting to realize I know who makes that game. It's some nerd. I too am some nerd. I have all the relevant qualifications. Um, and you know, and once you've realized that, then, uh, th that's very liberating. Um, and that empowers a lot of creativity, which I think is the valuable thing about all of this. Excellent. Now that that's that's one hundred percent. Pookie, uh, James just called you a nerd. Would you like to uh, have a rebuttal? <laughs> you got a rebuttal? Uh, no, I'd happily take that title on and um, uh, and, and pin it to my waistcoat. Um, well, there we go. Anything else you'd like to add, though? <laughs> no, I was going to say I think fanzines um, is James is entirely right about you know fanzines giving giving uh, gamers uh, and budding authors and writers access um and platforms um to create and we can mm -hmm. see and, and we can see that time and time again in the hobby as these fanzines as we've discussed have evolved over time you know um at, uh, and you know i think what it's fa it's fascinating to see them come back um when uh, really in sort of like you, you talk in the noughties where they kind of sort of mostly went away um, you know, I mean, of course, they came back with the old school renaissance, but there's interesting stuff coming out of that. Um, so yeah, I think one last thing is basically, can either can, can I, either Andy or James, can you recommend a fanzine, a fanzine which people would should read today? Ooh, who the plug? Oh, gosh, that's controversial. So I, I mean, the industry. <laughs> I'm going to abstain from making that recommendation. Um, golly, I'm, well, I'm just trying to think like, I mean, cause there's a lot of like in, in Your terms own. of like the tradition, <laughs> oh, sure. Fine. My ones. Yes. Blah, blah. <laughs> Go on. But sorry. I, um, God, I, there's just, there's kind of so much good stuff. Um, I, I, uh, God, I feel on the spot. Um, you know, I guess like the obvious thing to recommend would be, you know, to look at the things for the games that you're interested in. I don't unfortunately think that there's a good like this is what the world of zines is like fanzine out there like that there's not there's not like a starter fanzine and but if someone knows what there is i'd, I'd love to hear about it um i oh go on oh no go ahead jim sorry i didn't mean to um you know my my introduction to osr zines was uh oubliette which i don't think is around these days i don't know that was uh out of square hex 
Um, yeah, Peter Regan's Regan. Regan. Shout out to Peter Regan. But, uh, but I don't think I don't think he necessarily uh, um, produces that anymore. Uh, They're still available though. And they're yeah, terrific. Yeah, 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 for sure. That's that's a that's a recommendation. Um, yep. The other good thing that he that Peter Peter does is black pudding. Mm-hmm. Which, oh, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, yeah. Black, which is so really black pudding stellar. Which is a really really fun um, kind of James V. West kind of Gonzo take upon old school Renaissance style play. Mm-hmm. Um, but go on, James. You would. Oh no! I mean, I mean that. Uh, yeah, I like. I, like, I don't know where you begin. Like the the thing is that all the ones that I came up with are now kind of slick. You know, prosines yeah. or they're gone. Let me make it easy on you guys because I don't think we'll hurt feelings with this one. So, so before you go, is there an old school, not an old school Renaissance, but a classic scene of yours that if people were going to able to, if they were able to seek it out, what would be a recommendation for that? Do you have a particular, you know, early scene that you would that you would suggest? I suggest the uh, the, the Oracle. Ah. Is what I would suggest. <laughs> uh, super fun zine out of the Midwest in the early to mid '80s, and uh, okay. there's a deluxe reprint of it by uh, Tim Hutchings. Excellent. Okay, so uh, I'm, my recommendation for I'm going to give a recommendation for a fanzine of today. Okay. One that's ex- that is um, example of a world building one, and I've already mentioned it, and that's the Electrum Archive. Okay. Mm. It's you really so it's essentially just like a. Um, sort of like a planetary romance um weird uh, science fantasy um that is going to be get better and better as he adds more content um but when you go back to the past i would look i mean i mean thinking of um okay uk fanzines so mm-hmm. uh, dragon lords uh it was always good good discussion lots of um humor in it and it's been talked about being reprinted but they're not going to do it because they said you know we wrote the, we, the authors wrote this as teenagers there's no way people want to see that again but if you want a classic um kind of fanzine that supported dungeons and dragons then um, absolutely i would go with the beholder a beholder is, i i've got uh basically i'm just holding up a collection of the sort of like the, one of the collections of um scenarios that done, anthologies and I, and I read this recently and i went this is good stuff. I could I could run this today. I could run this using old school essentials. Wouldn't bat an eyelid. You wouldn't be able to tell the difference. It's so good. That, that's a great one. Great example. I, I would also say two OSR staples. You can't go wrong from the early days of the OSR would be Fight On and Knoxbell. Mm. I think if you have any or all of those issues, you have a lifetime's worth of gaming. You will mm. sort of perish before you can... Um, exhaust that that material. And, and, oh my god! Yeah. yeah, and it's important to note that both of those are available. They're available on Lulu, aren't they? Yeah. Yes. So for me, I think. Oh, sorry. Go on. Now the other thing to bear in mind, to look at also only a couple pookie gone is is gone farmer's <laughs> almanac. Wait, say it again. Is gone is gone farmer's almanac. Yeah. Gone farmer's Which, almanac. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Um, which, so for me, which, I'm going to pick a, one. That, oh, sorry, go on. Real quick on Gone Farmers, James. Uh, it, it's it's a it's a community sourced mm-hmm. free zine, which uh, you can get for free in either print or digital, which is incredible. I mean, there's nothing more old school and community based than Gone Gone Farmers Almanac for Dungeon Crawl Classics, mm-hmm. James. Uh, so I'm going to pick one that is actually a bit more recent. Mm-hmm. Um, 
than the the the, the early examples that uh, that Andy and Pookie suggested. And this is a, like I'm not making a claim that this was hugely influential, right. but it's a good example of what an apazine was like, and it was very influential on me personally, okay. um, which is uh, a thing called interregnum. Um, mm. which was uh, which was around in the 90s. Um, I don't know if Interregnum itself is um, is is available, but uh, the the constituent zines that made it up, some of them still are, in particular Reading Notes, um, which was David Dunham's uh, Glorantha zine, if I'm recalling that correctly, um, was was very... His, his Aurelius Wild campaign was the, the thing that really got me interested in Glorantha. And I think it holds up today. I think if you read it, it's... Uh, it's a fascinating um, look at a, a different way to to play in that setting, but one that still really conveys uh, the magic of it. Um, so I think, uh, I, you know, I don't know if that was still around. And I guess, you know, another thing, like, it, it, they're hard to find, unfortunately, um, but early Unspeakable Oath um, yeah. is is really good reading. It, it really shows uh, a different um, approach to a game that I think we all have a very fixed stereotype of. You know, everyone knows Call of Cthulhu, it's Packard 626s and Private Eyes and Socialites or whatever. And then these guys are doing very strange stuff with it. And if you like Unknown Armies, it's very clear how this is evolving into Unknown Armies as they go. Really good point. That's a deep cut there. <laughs> and the other one from is I would look at is, is Imazine, uh, which is put out by Paul mm. Mason, um, eventually, from uh, you know where he moved to um, from J- in, in Japan, and it was mostly uh, he's talking about um, his uh, Outlaws of the Water Margin role playing game, which sort of like vaguely came to fruition. But at the same time, what's important about that one is the disc- is the letters page more than anything else. Rather than the content, it's the community and the letter- letters page where you are seeing the discussion of the hobby and so on throughout the nineties. I've got, I've got one more mm-hmm. very, very recent. Uh, it's called Miseries and Misfortunes. It's Luke Crane's take on BX, uh. but set in 1648 France. Uh, and the the Counter Reformation uh, War. Um, and uh, it's on its uh, sixth or fifth issue right now. It's number six coming out. Highly recommend. Yeah, I, I forced Keith to buy that at Gen Con. Horrors. I, I, I bought all five <laughs> that were available at the time yeah. at Gen Con. Six is now available. I, more, more like he, that, com- he that will complete my set. More like he snagged them because it was like they. I'm like, oh, that looks interesting. It's like, yeah, too bad. Yeah, uh, <laughs> six is due sometime in uh, February. Right. So snatched them. So this has been excellent. I, I, I this has been fascinating. This has been enlightening. This is this is exactly what I was hoping and so much more. Um, I, I want to thank each and every one of you for taking the time, especially those of you in the UK who is way past your sleepy time. Um, oh, yeah. That uh, that 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 this turned out to be such an enlightening and wonderful conversation. And also would just like to add a an important one because with the current situation that we will not discuss. Uh, there are many people out there who are looking to move to other games, and I think with those comes the interest in not just the new games they're going to, but like with me, is you start to delve into the history of the hobby, and there's plenty of these things that you've suggested, both uh, old school and modern, that are that may able to supplement and help them make these transition into these other games that they're going to be checking out. So uh, this has been absolutely fantastic uh, thank you each and every one of each and every one of you for your time 
with that, um, let's let's close this out. Uh, Keith, you do you want to take us out? Uh, are you done sucking your thumb in the corner? Uh, <laughs> I'm done. I'm done curling up and being curled up in the corner in a fetal position, sucking my thumb tonight because I I am fully educated now. Wow, yeah. guys, thank you very much. I know this kind of grew out of a post game convention conversation and turned into this episode and this has been absolutely enlightening like scott said from both of us thank you from the listeners thank you and with that can we go around the room real quick and if you guys would like to give a quick shout out where where listeners can find you pookie where can listeners find you easiest way is on my blog uh, reviews from really uh, where notably i if you search for fanzine focus you will find um Reviews of fanzines going back about four years now. How ironic. Excellent. All right. James, where can listeners find you on the interwebs? Uh, people probably want to check out my podcast, Monster Man. You can find it online at monsterman.lipsyn.com. Um, I'm at Gonzo History on most social media. Um, uh, you know, the, the Bad Bird website. And, uh, you know, you can find me on the <laughs> other one at uh, Gonzo History at Dice.camp. Nice. And Andy, where can where can listeners find you? Uh, I seek no public spotlight, but if you need me, I'm uh, Andy Markham, M-A-R-K-H-A-M on Facebook. I also I, uh, admin the OSR RPG Facebook group, um, Andy Action on Twitter until it's gone forever. And uh, yeah, that's it. Excellent. Awesome sauce. All right, and I would like to throw a quick plug in for the Titter Pigs Discord. We have our little home on our on my Rolling Box Cars, my blog's uh, Rolling Box Cars Discord. So you can find Scott and I hanging out there, and along with a lot of our listener, other listeners, and our guests, and everybody else, we hang out there. We shoot the breeze and have lots of great conversations. You can uh, leave us messages there. You can uh, suggest topics for future conversations. All kinds of great stuff. And Scott? Uh, just want to quickly add that um, I'm going to do my best, or we're going to do our best, Keith and I, with what I feel is important about this episode is definitely go to the description of the podcast. I'm going to try to link as many of these things as possible, either a reference to them if they're no longer in publication, or if they are where you can find these things to try to make it as easy as possible for you to check these these many, many things that we've mentioned tonight out. So, Keith? Amen. All right, and with that, we are going to roll on out of here. <laughs>